So good for us to be able to be together this morning. Perhaps we're reminded of the words in Jeremiah 17, verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. And today, as we're assembled for the purpose of worshiping our God in truth and in spirit, we certainly can be so wonderfully encouraged by the truths that we've sung about and prayed about. And for the next few moments, even those that you and I can study about in the Word of God. We're so thankful for our membership and our visitors alike and all who've come our way today. And it's our hope that their service will be encouraging and edifying in the way that God would have it to be. The Serious Issue of Influence. That's the title of the lesson this morning. And you may have noted a moment ago in Matthew 18.6 that we heard read in our hearing a very powerful and compelling text. And we'll turn our attention to that at proper time in the lesson today. Here are some introductory remarks that might at least move us in the direction of our lesson this morning. Much of these have to do with the characteristic of influence. I believe we each understand pretty well what it means to have influence. That degree of impact or at least that degree of consideration that others might have as they witness or watch that which you or I do or say. The characteristic of influence is a very far-reaching thing, isn't it? And the Word of God has much to say about it. Today, as we contemplate some of those things, listen to just a few of these very powerful passages. In Philippians 2 verse 15, You and I are spoken of as those who shine as lights in the world. Others are watching what you or I do and say. They are observing the choices that we make, and by that we are able to, of course, show them either the way of rightness or maybe put a stumbling block before them and cause them not to appreciate what God would have them to know. It's a serious thing, then, to put a stumbling block before others. I would ask you to notice that we're going to study then today about our influences. What do you and I stand for as we begin that study, as we begin that lesson? I believe that a principle found in the heart of the Old Testament will be very meaningful to us. With your Bible in hand, could I invite you to revisit the book of 1 Samuel for just a moment? We'll use this to begin our study as it sets before us a series of principles, considerations that will aid us as we turn to the New Testament a bit later this morning. In 1 Samuel, chapters 2 and 3, the following series of ideas come before us. Let me share with you a bit of history so that we'll be readily able to appreciate that when we come to it in just a moment. The period of the Judges was a rather lengthy period of Old Testament history. We remember that following the death of Joshua that there arose these judges and 15 of them are named at least in the Old Testament. And for about 350 years they were the individuals who delivered Israel out of those circumstances, very dire of ones in which they found themselves. Of those 15, perhaps some of their names are very familiar. We remember Gideon, and we remember Jephthah, and we remember even Eli and Samuel, and of course there were several others as well. But as we appreciate the nature of those judges, could I ask you to reflect for a moment on Eli? Eli was the second to the last of the judges. He was the predecessor to Samuel. And Eli was one who himself had become to be a very old age. But interestingly enough, you notice that his sons, as Eli himself became very aged, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were those 
who carried out the duties and the responsibilities surrounding the work of the priesthood. All that sounds interesting, no doubt, but here is an interesting point. What does the Bible have to say about the life of Hophni and Phinehas? What does it say about the influence they had over others? Well, I would ask you to notice that the report that the Word of God gives relative to Eli's sons was exceedingly bleak and rather dark. It is, at this point, I would ask you to note these particular matters. When you and I remember the way the Old Testament had given commandment, the people of God, of course, were to bring their sacrifices. And, of course, as they made the particular offerings, the priest, at least for some of those offerings, was allowed to keep some of it. All of it wasn't consumed in the actual offering on the fire. In Leviticus chapter 3, and as well as Leviticus chapter 7, some of those details are given before you and before me. But at this point, would you notice what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 2? It is at that point I would invite you now to listen as I read a section out of that chapter. I'll begin reading in verse number 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now, or I will take it by force." Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The behavior of Eli's sons was described before us, and I've tried to summarize some of it at the bottom. It would be natural, wouldn't you think, given that these offerings were to be directed to God, that God ought to get His part first. And yet we've just read that Hophni and Phinehas would send their servants. They would dispatch them to where the sacrifices were made. And they said, we want our part now. doesn't matter so much about God's part. You give it now or we're going to take it by force. That's not all. A few additional comments about the behavior of Eli's sons are summarized at the top of this one. You'll notice that later in this very chapter... Verses 22 and following inform us that these same men committed fornication with the women, the ladies, that also came to do their work at the, at the place of offering. No wonder you'll notice, and I've tried to summarize it to you, look again at the description of these sons of Eli, verse number 12. They were called sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Isn't that a frightful description? Here were individuals whose chore and whose task it was in life to encourage the religious development of others. They were serving at the tabernacle. Here were individuals whose lives should have been the epitome of godliness and righteousness, and yet they were acting in a way to cause people to abhor service to God. It is that very statement made in verse 17. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. 
Don't you suppose it would be a tragic thing for a person by the judgment of God to be faced with this? By the behavior of your life, by the choices that you made, you caused others to despise the service of God. I suppose there would be very few things more frightful to hear in judgment than that. Randy, or put your name in the list. By what you said, where you went, by what you did, you put a stumbling block before others. You caused them to abhor service to God. That's a shame, isn't it? Now notice, these again were religious people, or were supposed to have been, officiating at the tabernacle, giving consideration relative to the nature of encouraging the development spiritually of others, and yet they behave like this. Does the word hypocrite come to mind? Does the word hypocrite in description of these sons of Eli perhaps fit so very well? As you and I come to the close of that, could we at least ask, what about the Holy Spirit's wording describing these sons of Eli? Sons of Belial. The word carries with it the thought of baseness, corruptness, or worthlessness. In terms of their distribution concerning the force of God, they were acting in a useless way. That's sad. Not only that. You'll notice as men abhorred service to God, that word literally means to have contempt for. You can almost imagine it. God had given commandment to individuals to bring their sacrifices and offer them. And you can imagine that various of the men would say, I know God has said to do this, but I hate it because Eli's boys are there. Can you imagine someone in our day pondering that? Well, today's Sunday and the church services are going to meet, but I just, I just don't look forward to going. Because the people there, I know what he did yesterday. I saw him. Sad reflection upon the life of Hophni and Phinehas, isn't it? But we're going to develop it and apply it, of course, to you and me. As we close that slide, certainly it's a very sad thing to notice the behavior of these boys, but look at God's judgment upon them, and I would ask you to notice verse 34. 1 Samuel 2, verse 34. And this shall be a sign unto thee, this was the word given from God to Eli, that shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. God wasn't very pleased with the choices these boys had been making. He wasn't very pleased with the kind of influence that they were setting before the children of Israel. And you'll notice God had even affirmed, Eli, there won't be a grown man left in your family. Every one of them are going to die. Because Eli was soon going to die. He was an old man. His two boys were going to die. God, you see, was so fed up with the poor influence of his boys that this judgment was going to come upon them. With all of that, perhaps as a bit of our background, let's make some applications to you and to me. Carrying these ideas forward centuries and bringing them into the heart of the New Testament so that you and I can appreciate the thoroughness and the power of what God would have us to know. First, these general comments. It seems to me that this example of Eli's sons points a very direct finger at every one of us who claim to be Christians. Remember, they too had religious consideration. They were the sons of the high priest or the sons of that gentleman named Eli, and they went about officiating in matters relative to the service of God. 
But you and I today as Christians, those washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14, those in fact who live for Jesus supposedly every day. You can so easily think of verses like these. Paul said it like this in Galatians 2, 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's that, Paul? Paul said, I died, the old man of sin died. I live for Christ each day. That means that Paul intended others to appreciate in him an example of righteousness, an example of goodness and truth. For those reasons, Paul could say, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Maybe those ideas then bring us to these. So many verses that set this idea before us, and I just wanted to select a few of them and ask each of us to ponder them for a moment. Let's begin in 1 Timothy 4. In the twelfth verse of that chapter, as Paul wrote to that young son of his in the faith, Timothy, Timothy was given these unforgettable words. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word in conversation, in charity, in faith, in purity. You heard that with me, didn't you? Paul told Timothy, Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, although you may not be an aged man. Nonetheless, you, by virtue of your commitment to Christ, are to be a living example of a number of things. Be thou an example of the believers in word. Timothy, the words you use, the kind of language you employ, you should be an example of others so that they would not be faced with a stumbling block, but they would appreciate the fineness and purity and godliness of the language you employ in word, in conversation. That word means lifestyle, the choices of one's conduct and behavior. Timothy, not just on Sunday and not just on Wednesday, every day. Your life is to be an open testimony to the profession of the faith that you have. Is anything different about that today? Of course not. As that list goes onward, we'll look at a few more of those things in a later portion of the lesson this morning. But already we've seen set before us these impressive words given to Timothy. How about the message of our Master Himself in Matthew 7? In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said as He spoke about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. That doesn't mean to take vengeance, does it? It means to express to others the kind of attitude, the kind of behavior that you and I would hope that they would dwell and share toward us. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? The influence that you and I set before others. Maybe at this point we could pause with others having seen the kind of life you and I live two days ago on Friday, or maybe yesterday, would they then be surprised to find where we are this morning? Would the two things seem to be in agreement? Or would they perhaps be a bit shocked? I can't believe where he is today given where I saw him yesterday. Or I can't believe where he is today and what he claims to be doing in light of what I heard him say yesterday. That's a very telling set of questions, isn't it? And yet, as the idea of influence comes before us, 
look at this whole set of verses. In the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, as Paul wrote that epistle you and I call 2 Corinthians, as he arrived at the 14th verse of that chapter, this challenging idea was set before them. He spoke, of course, in this about the death of Christ, but its implications for all of us. For the love of Christ constraineth us, Paul wrote. For we thus judge that if one, one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. As Christians, you and I live to a higher calling, to a higher purpose, the whole consideration of Jesus should be manifest in our life. You may remember a few years ago that there were bracelets that had the letters WWJD on it. And they were very popular and even in some ways still are. What would Jesus do? Is what I'm about to do, is it something He would have done? The words I'm about to say, could I imagine Him having said them? The place that I'm about to go, would He have ever been found in a place like this? If the answer is no, brethren, we better not be doing them, saying them, or going there. Because we're told the life of Christ should be manifest in what we say, what we do, and of course even what we think. Aren't we reminded in Philippians 2 verse 5, Let the mind of Christ be also in you. As we then seek to allow the thinking and the consideration of Jesus to manifest itself in us, those other verses come before us. Ephesians 4.1 You and I have the appreciation as Christians to understand the finest and greatest life of all is the Christian life. Not only because of the reward that it has in store, but because of the quality of life it makes in the here and now. The Christian is a high calling, isn't it? Paul spoke on that occasion about the vocation wherewith you're called. You and I as Christians have accepted the beautiful call of Jesus Christ. And thus we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. The last passage there in Philippians 3.14 rings in our ears as we so lovingly hear about the I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. All of those verses and many others alike set before us. What about my life and yours every day of the week? How's your influence? Is it an influence for good? Is it an influence that might attract someone to Jesus? Or is it a hypocritical thing where others perhaps are surprised? You're really a Christian? I, I just would never have known. Because of where I saw you or what I heard you say or what I saw you do to somebody, I just would never have thought it. If that kind of thing is oft said about you and me, there's a serious problem, isn't there? There's a problem because we're saying one thing, but we're living something wholly different. When it came to Eli's sons, that led to their judgment. It led to their death. It led to God's very serious removal of them. As you and I come near the bottom of that slide, Christians are given these very powerful marching orders. Let's begin in Titus 2, verse 11 for a moment. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's an encompassing statement, isn't it? 
God's grace and what it teaches us through the nature of the Word of God then sets before us this ultimatum. It teaches us that we've got to deny ungodliness. And furthermore, we've got to thus live soberly, righteously, and godly. Are those three adverbs descriptive of how you and I choose to live every day? I hope that it is. If it's not, make repentance immediately. And may each of us strive with a heart of desired obedience to God. Seek to look at this next passage. In Romans 10 verses 13 to 16, we know on that occasion that Paul spoke about whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he began to describe how shall they call on Him in whom they've not believed and how shall they believe on Him in whom they've not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher. And then maybe one of the saddest verses in all of Romans is in the 16th verse of that chapter. They have not all obeyed the gospel. May you and I obey it. Not just initially on that time when we became a Christian, but every day living faithfully, powerfully, rightly. And in so doing, our influence can be so good for the cause of Jesus. It is at that point that that slide closes. Probably the scene of Matthew 5 has already come so quickly to your mind. You remember it with me. As Jesus spoke about the nature of a follower of His, being a follower of the Master, He said, You are like a city set on a hill. Now that's interesting. All, at least many, are able to see that city. They appreciate where it's located, what it stands for. You and I are spoken of in that way. Also like the salt of the earth. And furthermore, spoken of like a candle or a light that you don't cover it because you want it to influence and provide light to those around it. Are you a source of light and am I? Are we behaving in such a way that others see the light that's in us, the light that's from God, and strive and desire to know more about it? In that text in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul, as he wrote to the church in Rome, another very famous passage, he set before them the fact that daily you are to be a living sacrifice for God. Don't you be conformed to the world. Don't do it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One more time, a question. Do you and I choose to behave in such a way just because they're doing it? He did it. She's doing it. Or it would make them happy. When it comes to things that God doesn't authorize, that's a terrible set of choices. Paul said, don't be conformed to the world. Many things our current world endorses, supports, even encourages. But the Christian can't do it because we serve a higher power and a higher master. And didn't Jesus forevermore say, you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, you'll cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, 24. In light of that kind of consideration, what about your influence and mine? It's a serious question, and that's why I titled it the way I did it. The Serious Issue of Influence. As we close that slide, go back to the text that I chose for you to consider with me. It's a chilling passage. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 6. On that occasion, as Jesus addressed and spoke to those that were so interested in hearing what He had to say, 
I'm sure that there were features of this passage and those verses that follow it that were extremely challenging. Listen again with me, please, if you would. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. I'd like you to think for just a moment about youngsters, and we're blessed with many here at Pippin. But think about other youngsters, maybe those with whom you associate throughout your walk of life. Think about one of those little boys or little girls. Are they gaining a pristine picture of the earnestness and seriousness of Christianity because of your life? Or in some way are what you do and say before them, putting before them a matter of stumbling. Jesus said, if you're causing them to stumble, it'd be better for a millstone to be hanged about your neck and you to be drowned. That's serious. That's very serious. Let's use the last part of the lesson to ask some questions about that and develop it with a special emphasis on a few attributes of life. The first one, as you think about this particular matter, takes us back to that word I used earlier because I suppose the word hypocrite seems so natural. Have you ever heard someone make the statement, well, they up there at Pippin are just a bunch of hypocrites. I live as good as they do. I truly hope that the life that you and I live truly does manifest the conviction that's in our heart. And others readily see that there is a difference because you and I practice what we preach. We live what we claim to, and our influence by that will be a strong one. And I hope the kind of statements that some might make along that line is just a prejudiced thing and it's not really true. I've always found it interesting to think about the word hypocrite. I believe we each know well what it means. I think it's interesting to consider the origination of that word. Where did that word come from many, many years ago? How was it developed? Well, I've tried to highlight it very interestingly. Think about those who act or who are putting on a play. So here's a stage and a particular person or group of people is on the stage and they're acting. Maybe a person is acting as though he's sick. He's not really sick, but he's acting like it. Or maybe a person is acting like a king. He's not really a king, but he's acting like it. That kind of background is the origination of the word hypocrite. A person is acting to be something he or she is not. They claim to be one thing, but they're something very different. God in both Old and New Testaments didn't look very favorably upon hypocritical activity, did He? And He doesn't, certainly as we're about to see in some of these verses. The Bible condemns that kind of thing. God, just as surely as He is a God of truth, He wants us to be people of truth. He wants us to be committed to Him in every way. And in so doing, look at a few of those verses. In Titus 1.16, Paul, as he wrote to Titus, had this to say, there were some who professed that they know God, but in fact they didn't. How do you know? Their life didn't manifest it. So on the one hand, they claimed to know God, but you sure couldn't tell it by the way they lived. They were hypocrites. And Paul gave a resounding condemnation of that thing. Of course, he still does. Not only that passage in Titus, you remember in Romans 2, verses 1, through 1, 2, and 3, 
as Paul addressed that church in Rome, they had a very interesting background. Some of those present on that occasion, of course, had strong Jewish knowledge. But others, of course, were Gentiles. On this occasion, he addressed the Jews and said, Guess what? When you choose to do the very thing the Gentiles do, you're going to be condemned just like they were. Despite the fact you claim to be a teacher of the law, you claim to be very knowledgeable of the things of heaven, your life shows something different. Isn't it still rather compelling to think about influence? Can you think about people who have influenced your life in such a good way? Maybe your parents or another family member or maybe a dear friend, someone who took the time and who was genuine, who was honest, and who lived the way that they were supposed to live as a faithful Christian. I'm sure they have impacted your life in unforgettable and eternal ways. But have you ever known of others whose influence was so much less impactful for good? Maybe they claimed to be good, and maybe they were for a limited time, but then they chose to act in ways that were unfaithful. A little boy or girl might have watched that, and they now are unfaithful themselves. The bottom of that slide, what about the way we talk? I suppose there are a few things that are as potentially impactful as the words we choose to use. Every day, thousands of words emerge from your mouth and mine. Our wife, our children, our associates at work, others, they hear what we say. They look at the demeanor of our life, and they know pretty quickly and almost immediately whether the language we're utilizing is consistent with the Bible. It doesn't take a genius to figure out whether a person's language is consistent with the basic thrust of the Word of God. We know all kinds of things about the kind of language that's not pleasing to God. As we develop that at the bottom, consider for a moment Ephesians 4 verse 29. A very encompassing passage, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And so that person who's telling shady stories, dirty jokes, using profanity, in any way that's immediately not acceptable to God. It just isn't. So do, do you and I ever do that kind of thing? Do we ever use these words that would then cause a little boy or girl to be mistaken or misled? Remember, he said, if I put a stumbling block before a little one, I just as well have a hill, millstone hanged about my neck and drowned. Well, what about you and I and the words we use? That little boy, it's looking up to you, Dad. Are you choosing your words carefully? Are you always setting before him the proper utility of speech and language? Mom, what about those little girls that are hanging on your every word? Are you choosing your words carefully? And what about the rest of us in our attributes and walks of life? God doesn't allow us any excuses here, does He? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That's encompassing of all of it. In Colossians 4 verse 6, we're told that our speech should be always seasoned. When you and I use a little salt to season our food, it makes it taste good, doesn't it? Our language, he says, it needs to be seasoned appropriately with the effect and imprint of the things of God. Look at those other verses. 
in Matthew 5, 37 and James 5, verse 12, references there made to another attribute of the care that should be descriptive of the words we choose to use. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than this becometh of sin. Do you and I deceive others by what we say? Oh, we'd never come right out and blatantly lie. But do we say it in a shady enough way that they reach the wrong conclusion? If so, we're just as guilty. For Jesus said, anything that leads to that kind of behavior, that purposeful, deliberate deception of another, is still condemned by God. May we be watchful of this. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Maybe that leads us to note that sentence at the judgment. I'm sure we've each perhaps vividly given thought to what it's going to be like to appear at the judgment day. Every individual who's ever lived is going to appear and give an answer for the deeds done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. But let us never forget that our words will also be on judged that day. Jesus said that, didn't He, in Matthew 12 verses 36 and 7. He specifically said, By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. If our words haven't been right, friend, we need to receive forgiveness from that. Jesus is the only one that can give us that forgiveness, but we've got to approach Him. But that begins with us realizing how serious it is to think about our words. That particular aspect of the lesson brings us to one final thing. We've talked about language. Might we talk about something perhaps we put into our body? Many things could no doubt be considered there, but what about one in particular? We know that our world is awash with a number of things that you and I can choose to ingest and take into our body. What about for a moment we just give some thought to tobacco and think about the impact and influence? And I'd like to ask you again, if there's a little five- or six-year-old boy, would you like to encourage him to start smoking? Would you like to encourage him to dip or to smoke a cigar? That little girl, six, seven-year-old, would you like to encourage her to start smoking? The question is, what influence are we setting? What impact are we having on him or on her and on others? When you and I think about tobacco, then it's clear the plant itself has a number of interesting chemicals contained within it that the human family can use. The question is, are they good to use for ingesting? Is it good to smoke it? Is it good to take it into our body? There's a number of principles that I would invite you to consider. Starting as far back as Genesis chapter 9. Human life is extraordinarily special. You and I were made in the image of God, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 7. And in Genesis 9, verse 6, we read there that it's not our lot to take life. I'm not supposed to murder and neither are you. I'm not supposed to willfully take the life of another. That's directly commanded, is it not, in one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. That includes self-killing. I'm not to take my own life either. That'll be taken care of when it's God's right time. When the circumstances are such that that is the thing, that then will take place. Thou shalt not kill includes suicide. It includes me taking my own life. What if I choose to take it slowly? 
and maybe take oh, a little tad of arsenic every day. Well, that would eventually do it. Just like a tobacco will as well. Nicotine's addictive. It has within it the characteristic of bringing about as medicine informs us of these things that are so hurtful and harmful. Question again, if I'm encouraging a youngster to do this, Jesus said, I just as well have a millstone hanged about my neck and drowned in the sea. What about your influence? And what about mine? Whether it touches the subject of language, whether it touches the subject that we've just been discussing of late. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that this body should be such that it glorifies God in every way. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. Do you suppose it's a glorification to God to smoke, to chew, to dip? Do you suppose those things, in fact, would glorify Jesus? If He were here watching, do you suppose He'd smile? be hard to think so in light of 1 Corinthians 6. For there Paul warned them anything that doesn't satisfy. Your bodies are Christians, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Surely we then ought to dwell in that spirit in such a way that it's clean and pure and remain in such a fashion that it can please God. One final thought on that slide. From Psalm 100 verse 3 as well as Revelation chapter 3 we find that the New Testament brings to your consideration and mind these lovely thoughts relative to the seriousness of our influence. And I'll close the lesson again with that question. What about my influence and what about yours? You must give an answer for yours just as I must for mine. If your influence is not as it should be, it's time to make some changes at once. Because you don't want to leave this life having given this influence that's poor and never been forgiven of it. But by the same token, isn't that a wonderful thing? No matter what your influence may have been, and sadly it may have been a poor one, but you can change. By the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that can be forgiven. And you can proceed to march in a way to where you can present a very positive and lovely influence to others. If today we could approach God in prayer for you as a wayward Christian, we'd be happy to do that. And as we make that prayer, Acts chapter 8 informs us that God will be happy to hear and He will forgive as long as you, of course, repent and confess those things to Him. But it might be that there's someone in the audience that's never become a Christian. At this point, clearly you can't be setting a good influence in regard to service to God because you haven't begun that service if we could help you today. And remember, the Lord's commandment is this. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. You must confess His name as the Son of God, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 3. And you must be baptized, Mark 16, 16. If we could help you today in that, why not begin a life with a positive and powerful influence and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing?